you're listening to the Mix It Up podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the LGBTQ plus creatives of the global majority who work across arts, culture, and entertainment. Hosted by Joey Reyes. Get ready to mix it up. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mix It Up podcast and welcome to episode 10, our season one finale featuring today's extra special guest, Roger Q. Mason. I am so I have all the feelings right now. I can't believe that this is this is it. We finally like this is the last episode of the first season. This project has been ongoing for me for like the last three months, really. I kind of got started in July, August. And here we are in mid-November, the week before Thanksgiving, entering the holiday season. And it's just gone by so quickly. But I definitely feel all of the time that I have been putting into this and putting this together. And I am so thrilled to have some time to kind of like rest and rejuvenate and think about what the future of Mix It Up is going to look and sound like. And I also want to thank all of you who have been tuning in and listening, Um, whether this is the first episode that you're listening to or it's the 10th. I'm grateful for you and for building this audience. And, you know, as much as I love to be able to build this platform for for artists that I love and, and folks that I that I just adore. I also really wanted this to create some sort of impact for folks and offer some inspiration for people who are listening and just some reflect some time for reflection, some time to feel represented by listening to folks who share identities with them. And it's been like I said before, it's been a labor of love. Um, I also want to give a shout out to, again, to the Arts Administrators of Color Network. I attended their annual convening this past weekend, um, November 11th and 12th. And it was it's the first time that the convening has taken place outside of the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, it has been housed there and, or based there for a few years. And then this year with uh, the new executive director being based here in Chicago, Carla Estela Rivera, she she brought the convening here and it was in different venues both days. We started at the School of the Art Institute on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we were at the Chicago Cultural Center. And I know that a lot of work and planning went into that. And I had such a wonderful time being able to see folks that I hadn't seen for quite some time, being able to meet folks in person who I've been friends with online for a while, and also just meeting folks who I'd never even met before or had not already been connected with online Events like that feel more like a family reunion than anything else for me. I always look forward to seeing folks and being in community and having the opportunity to explore a city and to hear from people. And, you know, we had an awesome opening opening on Saturday with welcome remarks from Aaron Harkey, who's the Commissioner of Cultural Affairs and Events for the City of Chicago, as well as our keynote speaker for the opening plenary, Tracy D. Hall, who is the 10th Executive Director of the American Library Association. Two incredible arts administrators who offered up some inspiration for us as we entered the weekend. There were six sites visits that folks could choose from. I went and checked out El Schomburg, which is an art gallery in Humboldt Park here in Chicago, just a few doors down from the Urban Theater Company, which was also part of that site visit. Um, so that was really wonderful to be able to like go in a group with folks and spend some time exploring a little bit of Humboldt Park and seeing uh, or visiting Urban Theater Company for the first time. So shout out, shout out to those folks, Ivan Vega, Miranda Gonzalez, and Tony, the company manager, for hosting that as well as well as all the other sites that were visited that day. On Sunday, like I said, we were in the Chicago Cultural Cultural Center, and that day really was the day where there were more breakout sessions. And I had the honor and privilege of being part of a session in the first round of breakouts entitled The Calls Coming From Inside the House. And I was on a panel with Kimberly Davis and Tori Wiggins, and it was moderated by J.R. Nexus Russ, talking specifically about internalized white supremacy and how even within groups of the global majority, how we end up causing harm to one another and what we can do to avoid that and how we can call each other in and call it rather than calling each other out to move forward as we continue to like get our house in order so that we can continue to take on structural racism within PWIs, predominantly white organizations, institutions, I mean, 
and just kind of in general across the arts, arts and culture sector. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there were other amazing sessions going on. Uh, the other two sessions that I attended were on workplace democracy and hearing from another session that was a, a conversation with with founders of the global majority, two incredible folks who founded their own organizations. And then we had a lovely closing reception that included free headshots that they were offering, a vendor fair and a dance party featuring DJ Jesse de la Peña with house music. And it was just, again, it was just overall an exciting weekend. I feel like I'm just now recovering a few days after being social all weekend and just my energy being up. I got to see so many, so many wonderful, excellent folks over the weekend. And so I, if you weren't able to make it, I, I'm sorry, but definitely you should stay connected with the Arts Administrators of Color Network. Their website is aacnetwork.org. You can find all their social media accounts attached to the website as well and just stay up to date, join the Facebook group, and hopefully you can come and join an annual convening in the future. One more thing I want to mention, I mentioned this at the end of last week's episode, but as of today, there are only two weeks left to apply. As I said last week, I am working with Evolution Management Consultants to find the next artistic director of Diversionary Theater in San Diego, California. It is the third oldest LGBTQIA plus theater in the country. And it's an exciting opportunity for someone who is a community builder, a curator, a season planner, an arts administrator, someone who loves getting involved in the community and is also looking for the opportunity to enter executive leadership and lead an organization into its next chapter. So you should visit emcforward.com. Uh, you can access the job description, the, the full job description there. And honestly, if you have any questions, any other questions that aren't answered in the job description, feel free to re reach out to me since I'm helping to, to find that next person. I'm very excited to see what, what comes of that. So with all of that being said, I want to introduce today's guest. Roger Q. Mason is a writer and performer who utilizes the lens of history to challenge the biases that divide us, seeking unity instead. Their plays have been featured on Broadway as part of the Circle in the Square reading series, off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and in regional productions. Roger's world premiere of Lavender Men earned praise from the Los Angeles Times, which described it as evoking the mingled visions of Susan Laurie Parks, Jeremy O. Harris, and Michael R. Jackson. Educationally, Mason holds degrees from Princeton University, Middlebury College, and Northwestern University. They're an esteemed member of the Dramatists Guild of America and Ma Yi's Writing Lab. Additionally, they're an alumnus of Page 73's Interstate 73 Writers Group and Primary Stages Writing Cohort. Roger plays a pivotal role as a lead mentor for the Marsha P. Johnson Institute's Starship Fellowship, the New Visions Fellowship, and the Shea Foundation Fellowship. And currently, they're a faculty member at Cal Arts in California. So without further ado, thank you again so much for tuning in to our season finale. I'm so excited for you to hear from Roger, and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mix of the Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening today. I'm very excited to have our extra special guest this week, Roger Q. Mason. Roger, hello. Hello, Joey. How are you, darling? I'm swell. I had a full weekend and probably needed a little bit more sleep this morning, but I'm here and I'm feeling good. How are you? Wow. I mean, you know, I've been bebopping around this country of ours and so I finally am back in Los Angeles. And the other day I did something that I normally don't, and I'm making it more of a practice, which is I took a nap. <laughs> I was so I was so exhausted that I, I think I was midway through changing my shirt and I found myself on the bed asleep an hour later. And I took that as a sign that, you know, the body is requesting certain things, including rest and self-care. Mm -hmm. And if you ignore her, she'll just take them anyway. So <laughs> best to preemptively listen and do what you need to do. So I'm now just really sitting in acknowledging what I need and acting on it preemptively so I don't fall out. Absolutely. And the rest is really important. You have a lot coming up in the next few months um, oh from God. what I see online. <laughs> and there's even more than that, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a really lovely time. We did a production of 
Lavender Men in 2022. The director mm -hmm. was the fantastic level holder. We were at Skylight Theater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you finish a show and you don't know what's going to happen next. And you just get out in the world and continue planting those seeds of, of kindness and generosity towards others. And you don't expect anything in return. But many times people do return or something unexpected happens. So this past year, I went to Chicago mm -hmm. and um, I was invited to participate in a uh, showing of my play, Lavender Men, this past spring uh, with About Face Theater. Now, I had heard about About Face Theater from one of my mentors at Northwestern the great E. Patrick Johnson, Dr. E. Patrick Johnson, who yes. has a long and storied affiliation with About Face. So I sort of looked at About Face as a place to land as a TGNC artist back when I was still in the MFA program at Northwestern. Now that was, you know, about 10 years ago when I got there. So, you know, almost a decade later, here I am landing there at this reading. And it was a reunion with Lucky Stiff, director, performance artist, writer, content guru, just brilliant all around human. And mm -hmm. it was a reunion for the two of us because the two of us were in the Northwestern program together. And it was really with Lucky. And, and I will name names later too, but <laughs> 2014, 15, and 16 were exciting years in terms of queer performance art and theater in the city of Chicago. Mm. And at the center of that movement, I think, were some of the brilliant minds in the theater and performance studies programs at Northwestern, specifically in the graduate program, but also a lot of the undergrads. Mm. And I just so happened to have been there doing my MFA in this fertile period of time. And I got a chance to meet the likes of Lucky Stiff, Mayfield Brooks, Milandi Zandi, Didier Morelli. The list goes on. People whose work continues to resonate and persist in me as an inspiration and a guiding light. And, you know, here we are on Mix It Up, a show that's dedicated to amplifying the voices of TGNC artists. And I have to say that it was in that period, in that city, at that time, 2014, 15, and 16, that I really came into my own as a gender expansive person. Hmm. And it all started in a ba in a bathroom, as many things do. As many do, as many things do. <laughs> <laughs> but it started in the bathroom, darling. That's how you got my phone number, right? I mean, I, I don't kiss and tell, so don't don't ask me to say nothing on this on this platform. But what I will say is that I found myself in a gender neutral bathroom for the very first time in hmm. Chicago, and you have to understand the significance of that event for me as someone who grew up in the mid 80s and early 90s when there were no names for the the trans and gender expansive life that i was leading unwittingly mm -hmm. and there was no support system around visibility and inclusion for for queer kids in the ways that there are now now mm -hmm. things are rough still and we have a long way to go and we've regressed in some ways. But I just remember when I was a kid growing up, there was nothing to hold me in all of my expansiveness as, as a person outside of the binary. And in fact, there were various forces, even forces within my own household, and certainly in school and, and for certain in, in the culture at large, whose main goal was to silence and make invisible those differences. Mm -hmm. So for me to find this bathroom was an undoing of, at that time, 30 years of trauma, of policing, of silencing, of invisibility, of shame, of doubt, of self-hate, of ignorance, of homelessness and heartlessness mm -hmm. and spacelessness. In one instant, by answering the call of duty, in a particular room that was made for folks like me, I found the road to freedom. 
And I was never the same because now I had a history. I had a lineage. I had a place to belong. Mm -hmm. And I had a place to start. And I had an acknowledgement that I wasn't nuts. Yeah. And that I wasn't wrong. And that I wasn't to be admonished for all of these ways of being in the world that I had lived all these years without support. So it was a magical place, this bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) And it was also an important time in Chicago, making those friends with whom I continue to share ideas and, and experiences artistically and socially. So I left in 2016 from Chicago and started leading a, a, a rigorous bi-coastal life, surviving pandemics and many recessions and bigger ones too. And then I get this call this past fall, mm-hmm. uh, this past spring, excuse me. And it was a homecoming and it was a return to a place that had given me so much and taught me so much about who I was and who I could be. And now that I was no longer in this nascent phase of self-knowing, I could now look at it with fresher eyes. I could appreciate it even more deeply. So it was partially returning and doing this reading was partially about trying to sell the show to this theater company and to the city of Chicago at large. Mm -hmm. But it was also about returning to a place to give it thanks for the road that it sent me on after I left in 2016. Mm -hmm. And so it was a homecoming. And I think everyone in that room could feel the urgency, the need, and the potent timeliness of my return. And they sought fit to extend that return. So a couple of months after that, we received a uh, offer for Lavender Men to get its Chicago premiere mm-hmm. at About Face Theater. And that will be going up in, uh, what is it? It's May. In May. That's right. Thank mm-hmm. you. You know the schedule. It's <laughs> May of 2024. So Lucky Stiff and I are back in business and we're mm-hmm. you know working on the show together and very excited. Now, abundance is abundant. <laughs> that's what it is. And so yeah. when it rains, it pours. So s- shortly after that, a theater that I had been talking to about a play of mine called The Pride of Lions, which is about, oh yeah, we'll call them female impersonators because that's how they self-reported in this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it, it's a piece about 1928 of female impersonators who are imprisoned for performing in Mae West play, The Pleasure Man. And this is their evening in jail. And of course, those girls put on a, a, a murderous cabaret for the sergeant. <laughs> and so this is this is their little this is their little Maratzad, you know, moment. So that's great fun. And so that's going up in, in San Francisco, and that's in March. And then we had, and then I had a long-standing engagement. I knew about this a while ago with my very dear friend Tabi Magar, who's doing the Duat, my play mm-hmm. about the Black Power Movement, a solo show. And that's going up at Philadelphia Theater Company in June of 2024. So that gets us through what I know about 2024. And then, of course, you know, I'm calling every regional theater and every off-Broadway host in town <laughs> to see if I can get bookings for 25, 26, or at least plant the seeds for them because momentum begets momentum. So while you have everybody's attention and they're still answering the emails that you send, best to strike the iron before it freezes, as Sam Beckett used to say. Mm. Amazing. Incredible. I knew about some of those, but not, but few of those productions I had not known about quite yet. So that's amazing. You're going to be in Across, you're literally going to be across the country within a matter yeah. of months. It's <laughs> starting, be, it's starting really in January. You know when we start rehearsals and such for the San Francisco show. Mm-hmm. So it'll be so it'll be um it'll be quite a busy season. And then in addition to that, I'm very happy to say that I'm a faculty member this year at Cal Arts, and I'm I'm, I'm co-teaching with um, Dean uh, the uh, Associate Dean Amanda Shank a class called World Theater. And, you know, as a multiracial person, it's so important to me to spread the gospel of global storytelling to the next generation, not only of theater makers, 
but also um, theater patrons. Because mm -hmm. I think education trains not only the makers of theater, but the people who support it, you know, from, from the audience. So that's a, a really exciting addition as well. So it's busy. I mean, it, it's it's a busy time in, in, in an era of so much instability and, and, and fright around various topics, civic and otherwise. I'm grateful to be needed and grateful to be serving people where I can. That's amazing. That's so exciting. Cal Arts. Oh my gosh. That's one of the programs. I had looked at one of their programs before I decided to go to Northwestern myself. Mm. <laughs> Trying to figure out exactly what it was I wanted to study. <laughs> but that's amazing. Oh my gosh. Academia, traveling, just making theater all over the country. And yeah, like you said, getting that, gaining that momentum. And, and I have no doubt that come end of 2024 going into 2025 and even 2026 that we're going to see more of your work on more stages well, thank um, you. as we as we start to you know figure out how to continue to emerge from from this 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 new life that theater is taking on but i do i do want to be able to spend some time talking about your upbringing a little bit but before we do that i just want to take a quick break so we will be right back Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mix of the Podcast. Uh, we're here with a special guest this week, Roger Q. Mason, diva queen, theater maker extraordinaire. Um, <laughs> dear, dear friend of what? I don't know, maybe like going on three, four years now. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, we definitely met the pre-pandemic -pan, pre back yes. in New York City when I saw your play, The White Dress. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> the White Dress. Okay, and I know we want to talk about my upbringing, so I I think the white dress is a good is a good mm -hmm. place to do that. Yeah, you know that that play. So I recently went to the Cloisters Museum that's affiliated with the Met in New York, and the Cloisters Museum is all about religious iconography of the mm. Judeo-Christian ethic, centering on the mid medieval period specifically. And so there are plenty of passion play or passion, the, the passion of Christ images. Mm -hmm. And for those that are not in the life, and I mean the life of, of, of the incense and cloth, also known as Catholicism, you know, my mother is a Filipino, a woman, from, moved to the United States in 1980. And she, she was raised Catholic. She she calls herself a drunken sailor Catholic now because she cusses and sins, you know, and, and I don't know if the church would still have her. That's what she says. But, <laughs> but there's something interesting about what I call cultural Catholicism, which is the ways in which the rituals and the social mores and the expectations or ways of being in the world that are instilled through Catholicism permeate the everyday lives of people who practice it either directly or through proximity. And so that play of mine, The White Dress, it was inspired by the, the Stations of the Cross, meaning the, the Passion of Christ from, well, see, now this shows that I haven't been to the, the Temple of Jesus, from, <laughs> from the... <laughs> from the crucifixion to the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And and there's 12 stations of this. And in the abstraction of it in German theater, it's called Stasien und Dramen. And this particular style of drama is about, it is a social commentary about the effects of a particular so society or social phenomenon on the individual. So it's human versus society. In other words, if you're looking at a, 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 a sort of narrative type. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking at the time in that play, and, and this gets us to my upbringing. We were looking at the time at the ways in which young kids are socialized into shame about, quote, non-normative behavior mm -hmm. and non-normative desire. So it was a genderqueer coming of age play about this kid who was absolutely perfect, you know, at age eight before socialization. And then through the course of this play, learns that who they are as a genderqueer person is quote, end quote, wrong. And then has a series of unfortunate events to occur to them because of that undoing of self-knowledge. And the ultimate 
end of the piece is a return to the knowing that they had when they were young. And it was sort of, it was inspired a great deal about my own life, you know, and and my own journey to accept the fact that I was a gender expansive person in a household that would police my behavior. Oh, you know, I'm sure some of our listeners on here, if if they're, uh, you know, old enough to come from that generation where such things occurred, act like a man, don't flail your hands like this, don't stand like that. All of these ways in which parents try to regulate and relegate male assigned at birth kids Mm-hmm. from acting in ways that would telegraph a femininity or a fayness that might, and in my case, I, I think they must have assumed that through osmosis, that would make me a queer person, that the behavior was first, and that by embodying it enough, I would become this, quote, sissy, the 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 the, the great admonished figure of, of the time, you mm. know, and, 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 what what's problematic in that, of course, is number one, the conflation of gender expression and, and sexual orientation. Now, this is a longstanding misdirection, which I think is somewhat intentional in our society. You know, I don't know if people, we have a long history of conflating different taboos in order to make them all very generally bad. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that used to get distilled through PSAs. You know, mm. I don't know if your folks had ever seen the homosexual, the the, the PSA. Oh, I've seen the, clips of it, but I don't know if my parents were ever exposed to it. I've seen the whole damn thing. And what's unfortunate about it is that it conflates homosexuality with pedophilia, mm-hmm. which bred even in the years that my dad was young, a hysteria. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, the implications of that manifested in the schools. I don't know, you know, I, I, of course, I'm I'm not a historian on, on the history of education in this country, but my, my emotional memory tells me that it was either in the late 60s, or early 70s, that gay teachers were either banned or it was made difficult for them to hold positions in public schools mm-hmm. because there was the fear that they would be a danger to the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's a direct link back to this PSA. And I think similar other conflations occur and certainly did occur when I was growing up as a young kid. And so my parents, you know, I've learned to develop a great deal of compassion for the position in which they found themselves, a, a position in which there was no vocabulary for this otherness. And so they were just trying to create or seemingly maybe I'm being too generous but they were just trying to create a, a, a safe place for me to thrive. And so they said, just act normal and get through this little childhood and this adulthood that we have in this town and you know, Los Angeles in this era. And I remember when I actually came out, I was thrust out, really. I was thrust out in, in, a, in the most violent way through an argument with my younger sibling. And my dad was downstairs overhearing this conversation. And I just remember when the announcement of my queerness was made vocal and audible to my dad, thinking this was it. I was going to be excommunicated from the family and I would now have to start another life. Mm -hmm. And there was great liberation in that too, because I had been holding on to a major part of myself. I was 28 and I had been holding on to a major part of myself and my identity that they needed to know. And through means outside of myself, they now knew. So I went downstairs and it was a very silent breakfast. And my dad just casually says, well, I had suspected this before, but now I know. And then he starts laughing. And it was this moment of relief, really. And then he wanted to ask all kinds of inappropriate questions about male intimacy. And I, 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 you know, and then and 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 he has since become quite a a um quite a drum major for the LGBT cause. And my mother came to accept me later. Hmm. And I remember that summer when I was twenty eight, 
I was working at the time. I was either working or no, I think I was finishing Middlebury, the master's program. And I was, I was at the Asheville, North Carolina campus. So I was in, I was in the South doing, Mm -hmm. doing school for master's program, master's in English through Middlebury college. And I remember she had found out because she was out of town or something and the info had gotten to her later. And she called me three times. And in each of these calls, she had a different message. The first one was, I know what happened. I don't want to talk about it. The second one was, whoever you want to be, don't do it till I'm dead. And the third one was, mother loves you no matter what. And it was like watching this woman process Mm -hmm. the coming out in different phone calls. I've never told this story. So that was almost 10 years ago that that happened and and pretty late for you know for 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 a, a young queer thing you know to come out at 28 but some of us don't come out till much later you know there's no time frame and no circumstance under which but i i sometimes wonder what would have happened if i hadn't come out then you know how much longer would i have gone on mm. and i felt so much freer after it you know, I had a leg to stand on. I had a fight that I could speak out uh, on behalf of. And of course, my my writing changed. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was a whole era dedicated to the celebration of that visibility, you know, because it, it meant so much to unleash that, especially coming out of the, the 80s and the gay 90s, where there was no language and it was don't ask, don't tell. And that, that was not just in the military, that was everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. So- you know, when I think of my upbringing, I think of a household. My dad's black and Irish, mother's Filipino. My aunt, I, we were we lived in a house in Koreatown um, that, that the family owned since the 1940s. And so we were literally living in a museum because my aunt was born in 1892 and she lived to be 103 years old. Gosh. And her two sisters were born in 1910 and 1912 or or so, depending on which, you know, ID you looked at, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, they were born in the teens of the last century. And so I sat at a dinner table with women whose parents came out of slavery mm-hmm. and who understood America and understood Los Angeles in a very different interdisciplinary way. And so I guess the other thing is that history has meant so much to me, not only as a person, but also as an artist, because I've lived in it, with it, through Mm -hmm. it, with these folks. You know, I spent my formative years with them. They were alive until I was, you know, 18 and went off to school. Mm -hmm. And I spent my formative years with these women. And of course, my father's older as well. And so he's living, he's a living museum, basically. So <laughs> I can't help but think about history in that way. But my upbringing is, was both the most grounding and historically significant and supportive. You know, there was so much love and so much inspiration. It's, it's That's the house where I learned about the power of language because I had to recite Langston Hughes from the time I was three years old. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's that house. And so there was that aspect of it. And then there was simultaneously this silencing of the other half of who I was. And so I spent the next two decades really reconciling those two selves. Mm -hmm. And I think I did all right with reconciling it. And I think (laughs) my own clarity of intent and, 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 and selfhood is partially why I'm doing better now in the world. And also as a human being, because I I'm, much more cohesive and 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 realized in my intentions. I know who I am and what I have to offer to the world in ways that I have the clarity for now. And I didn't always have that. Right. Absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. That's like a beautiful button because now now I'm I'm interested in looking towards the future and seeing how that that clarity that you have and I'm knowing you over these last few years too, the vision that you carry for for our community, for our people, for for people that you share identities with, people you don't share identities with, um, and what it looks like through the power of storytelling. So we'll dig a little deeper into that in just a moment. We'll be right back. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mixed Up Podcast. Again, we're here with our very special guest this week, Roger Q. Mason. If you're just tuning in, uh, we're we're kind of winding down already, in a sense, and uh, within our time together. But yeah, I just, you know, we just we just got to this place where, where you were discussing your upbringing and how you've come to this place in your life with where you have great clarity about your sense of self and who you are and what you have to offer to the world. And you're so, and, and this is me speaking as just like knowing you personally, like you're someone who's so grounded in who they are and, and is so confident in the way that you speak and the way they're able to articulate your vision and your ideas for the world. Because of that, I and this is part of the reason why I really, really wanted to have you part of this first season of the show is I'm so we're in this moment now, right? And I've been having this conversation with all of my guests because, you know, in this particular moment that we're sitting in, and I imagine it's going to continue to kind of elongate because this episode will be coming out maybe a month or so from now. But we're at this like crux. We're at this regenerative, regenerative position in the world of storytelling, not just in theater, because obviously we have the strikes going on uh, of uh, SAG and WGA, where where we're sort of like having to reconcile our humanity with technology, it seems like, and, and storytelling and how all of that is intersecting. So I just would love to hear from you what your th- thoughts are and how do we move forward from this from a perspective of someone who is traditionally, you know, whose identities traditionally sit on the margins. I feel like we've heard enough from like the cis white patriarchy on and their thoughts on what the state of the world is. Yeah. So I'm really curious to know what what your thoughts are on how you think we can move forward. Well, we have to go back to go forward. You know, that's that's the power of Sankofa. Mm. We were dealt an opportunity in the plague times to really genuinely connect with each other. Mm -hmm. No one had an office to be at. No one had a meeting that they could use to obfuscate connection. We were just at home. And that was a frightening time because we were all at home hoping we didn't get sick with this thing that could take some of us out. Mm -hmm. But it was also a really important learning lesson because it taught us how to listen and how to really be present and connect with one another with no other expectation than wild curiosity for someone else. And I think the first thing we need to do in terms of moving forward is to acknowledge what it means to really do something good for somebody. Stewardship, mentorship, and motherhood are three of the great lessons that the pandemic taught me. During the pandemic, I started doing a lot of online mentorship. I led and 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 co-founded a couple of different programs centered primarily on POC artists and particularly transgender non-conforming artists. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which people lit up when the room gave them space to find themselves was like no other experience I'd ever had. I found my passion. I found my mission, which was not only to tell stories that are freedom songs for the misbegotten, but also to inspire the next generation to tell their story. Because that is perhaps the more long-lasting legacy of the work that I do or that any of us does, how we connect with somebody else, how we give them the tools to find themselves and sustain this thing that we helped pioneer in whatever ways, because we're all pioneers, in whatever contributions we made in the continuum of human existence, if we can just leave a little bit of grace and a little bit of knowledge to the next generation of what we did and what we didn't do and what we should have done, then we've done our work. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's important. So I think the other thing too is service. So listening is part of it. Service is part of it. In terms of the industry in which we ply our trade, I would say, why do people go to a Beyonce concert? (laughs) They're getting what seems like a tailored, spectacular, singular, live experience that you cannot get anywhere else where like many divas before her, people claim she sang directly to me. So how do we make audiences feel like they're going to an experience or an event that they can't get anywhere else? 
And how do we sing directly to them? Now, the answer to that is as varied as the plays that we program Mm -hmm. or the ways that they're embodied through production. But I think we've got to always think about what sets us apart from our streaming counterparts. You know, we have such gifts in the theater, visual metaphor, metatheatrics, direct address, spectacle. These are all tools that I think we're going to have to reignite our commitment to. And I find that the shows that really stick are the ones that do that. And they're also the and also shows that speak directly to people. So I think we also have to think about how do we use this craft to make our audiences feel seen? And part of that is still the work of visibility politics. Mm. How do we tell the stories of the people that are really out there now? The, the theater is the seeing place. It is the place where we come to see our lives reflected back to us. So we can't exclude certain voices. We can't exclude certain methods of storytelling. We have to embrace them. And we have to know that audiences are savvy enough to stay. And we also have to know that we need to develop new ways of speaking to audiences. How do we look at the retention rates of audiences and how do we build new audiences? These are questions that master's degree programs are built on. Mm -hmm. So I'm no expert. I can only provoke the question. But it it seems to me that what we've got to think about is how do we get our peers who are not in theater to say, I want to go see that cool thing that my friend Joey made last week. And then once they're there, how do we create an audience journey for them that makes them feel like we were talking directly to them? Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but Burberry and other luxury brands like that have figured it out. It's called the customer, the customer odyssey. Mm-hmm. And that's based on very simple human psychology. Everyone wants to feel like they are special and like they are included in the group. The church figured it out. <laughs> the church for damn sure figured it out. And we are an and we are an arm of the church in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were we in ancient Greece and also in ancient Egypt, we were a part of the religious proceedings of the society. Mm-hmm. So it's baked in our DNA to find to find new disciples. We've just got to figure out how to do it. And I think sometimes that means not doing a show in a theater. You know, I'm I'm working on something right now and I can't say much about it because I'm I'm in very early stages, but it's it's a piece about falling in love. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't want to do this necessarily in a theater. Let's do it in a bedroom. Yeah. Let's have a chamber drama in the chamber and let's invite 30 people to eavesdrop on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sort of thing is what I think we've got to do. And we've got to think that way. They said they they got it in the 60s and the 70s with the happenings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, they had that production of Uncle Vanya that came out. I saw it that went, when it expanded. Fantastic use of space and exclusivity mm-hmm. as, as a marketing ploy. And also ge- a genuine experience when you went to go see it. There you were sitting in that kitchen with these solipsistic, defunct Russians running around you know, not able to do anything. And, but you were, but it was that sense of voyeurism. And I think voyeurism is a key to it too. We have the ability to make people see the taboo, the naughty, the unseen, the unexpected. So I think we've just got to finally embrace, the, my final point is that I think we've got to continue to embrace the uniqueness and the singularity and the sublime nature of the magic we hold in the palms of our hands as theater artists. We're alchemists. And I think if we can spread that magic dust in just the right way, people will be there. Now, you were asking about plans for the future and, you know, my own plans. I I mentioned earlier that I wrote a series of plays in an era about self-actualization and and a feeling of um, visibility and empowerment of visibility. Mm -hmm. Someone recently asked me, they were going through my plays from that time, they were asking me, What's your audience? And of course, at first, in a moment of frustrated comparison to others' success, I said, I don't know. I can't do anything. I'm not, you know, getting all these awards and I I don't know who I did it for. And then, you know, the the thing we do every two weeks when we go crazy. (laughs) And then and then I sat and I said, you know what? I wrote those for me. I wrote them for me. Mm -hmm. 
I wrote those plays to tell that kid who was 12 and called a sissy ass faggot that, God damn it, you were absolutely perfect the way you were. And everybody that called you out of your name, Diva, Miss Mason, everyone that called you out of that name ought to kiss your ass because you were fabulous. Mm-hmm. And it's a damn shame that you spent 20 some odd years trying to reclaim the brilliance that you already possessed when you were unsocialized. And how many people spent that same 20 years undoing other people's bigotry and hate? Plenty. Mm-hmm. And the fight continues. So I wrote them for me, but I think I've got an army of survivors that can look at those plays and say, that was me too. To me, also those things happened. And it was okay that I wrote them for me, that I wasn't contriving some audience that I was pursuing in some capitalistic product-oriented fashion, that I wasn't competing in the marketplace to capture certain demographics. Maybe I just sat up Lil Jane Austen, Lil Emily Dickinson in my house and wrote them stories for me so I could go to bed at night. And maybe, just maybe, Joey, mix it up, audience. Maybe that was good enough. And see, that was the healing. And that was the medicine. Because I said, you know what, child? You can take care of yourself. You don't always have to be working. And sometimes your work can align with what you need in your personhood. And that's okay. And so the healing was realizing what I use those plays for, but also recognizing that somebody else could benefit from that story too. And now I look at the end of that moment, or at least the end of it for now, because, you know, things are cyclical and they resurface. Mm -hmm. Now I want to laugh. Now I want to be the clown. Now I want to be the showgirl who writes it down. Mm -hmm. So now I'm looking at that. What is satire? What is hilarity? What is comedy? How do those mechanisms of storytelling make their way into my writerly body? So that's what I think people are going to see next from me professionally. My mother always said I was funny and she never understood why I didn't formally or officially write a comedy. So (laughs) there we go. I'm going to do it. Now you're writing one. (laughs) I'm going to make mother laugh on the stage. So and I'm excited about that. But I think you have to be on some journey to healing in order to laugh, you know, and sometimes the laughter is the healing. But I really am, because I think part of it too, Joey, is when we're younger and we're in this business and and trying to make our way through this maze of show business, we want to prove our intelligence to somebody so they can tell us that we're good enough. And so part of it is saying I was good enough because I did it for me and and I feel good that I did it. And that was it. So now I no longer am needing to prove there's no gymnastics of cerebrality that I'm having to interpolate and perform. Now I can just laugh, have fun, no expectations. And that kind of freedom feels so good to have found. And it feels so right to have arrived in that place and now to have the luxury to explore it. I'm not fighting for selfhood anymore. I can sit down and laugh. Beautiful. That's like the perfect button to to end on. Thank you, Roger, for taking the time to sit and chat with me. The Roger Q. Mason, the brilliant, the divine. And I am so excited for everything that's coming your way in 2024. And you can expect to see me at Lavender Men here in Chicago come next spring. Um, And we'll have a little reunion then. Oh, that'll be beautiful. I can't I can't wait to share space with you and 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 share that piece with you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Just sit back and relax and we'll be right back. Hi everyone. Welcome back. This is my final final segment before signing off for this season. So honestly, I don't really have much to say that I haven't already said, you know. I mean, I'll start by saying that I think my conversation with with Roger was amazing and I love being able to be in conversation with them and just hanging out and kicking and honestly talking shit sometimes too. <laughs> I just adore them so much and I'm so excited for the year. The first half of their 2024 is pretty much all booked up. So if you're someone who book shows 
and you're listening to this, I need you to listen. I need you to like check out Roger's work and I need you to get them booked up for the next couple of years because they're on their way to, I mean, they're already going to be all over the country just within the first six months of 2024. And I'm so looking forward to seeing a full scale production of Lavender Men here in Chicago in the spring of 2024 and to just be able to spend time with them while they're in town. That being said, I want to thank every single one of my guests that joined me for this season. It's been quite the journey, and I'm so happy that everyone said yes. You know, there were some folks who had said yes, but then ended up not being able to do it after all. And they're definitely on the list for the next season of Mix It Up. So there's plenty of folks out there, regardless of how you might, how scarce you might think we are, we are actually abundant. Uh, as a community of with these intersecting identities of being of the LGBTQ plus community, as well as people of the global majority. I am going to continue to put Mix It Up out there because there are tons of us out there who have something to say and who have stories to share. And a huge thank you to every single one of you who have been listening, are listening for the very first time and are just showing up and showing out for the community. Allies as well. Thank you so much to the allies. <laughs> I'm just so grateful for you all. And I appreciate every comment, every share, every like. I'm just continuing to get the word out there that this is a platform that exists and is available for folks to tune into. I wish you all a wonderful holiday season. Stay warm this winter. Enjoy your Thanksgivings, your Christmases, your Hanukkahs, your Kwanzaas, your New Year. Definitely stay up to date with us on social media at Mix It Up Pod. And you can also follow me at Mix Joey Reyes on Instagram. I post a lot of updates there as well. And I just look forward to bringing season two to you in the spring of 2024. That's the plan, at least. <laughs> Thank you all so much again. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Mix of the Podcast. Feel free to support us further by commenting, rating, or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You may also follow us on Instagram at, at Mix It Up Pod. Mix It Up is produced, hosted, and edited by Joey Reyes. If you enjoy our music, please check out DJ and new media artist Professor Rex on Instagram at, at Professor underscore Rex. That's W R E C K S. Until next time, remember to mix it up. <laughs>